Welcome to The Landscape, your show about America's parks and public lands. I'm Aaron Weiss, the Center for Western Priorities in Denver. If you're wondering what happened to the old name of this show, Go West Young Podcast, go back to the last episode in your feed for a great conversation about the legacy of Manifest Destiny and why it was time for us to find a new name. So here we are, one week after Election Day, Joe Biden is the president-elect. And in this episode, we are going to look at how the West voted and how public lands fared in the 2020 election and what a Biden administration could mean for everything from parks to oil and gas drilling. But before that, the Trump administration still has 10 weeks to go, and this lame duck period is fraught with danger. Joining us today, our executive director here at the Center for Western Priorities, Jen Rokola. Hello there. Our policy director, Jesse Prentice-Dunn. Hey, good morning. And Curtis Hubbard, the former editorial page editor at the Denver Post, now a political consultant in Colorado. Curtis, welcome to your first time on the podcast, I believe. Thanks. A longtime listener, first time participant. (laughs) All right, Jesse, I want to start with an analysis you just released this week, looking at the Trump administration's unfinished business on public lands. Uh, What did you find? Well, so we've been tracking for the last year what the Trump administration has been trying to accomplish when it comes to rolling back protections for public lands and wildlife. Um, And what we found now is with two months left, and now that the election's been decided, um, there are uh, dozens of policies that the administration is trying to ram through. Um, They're racing against the clock. So some of the, the most damaging include approving seismic testing and auctioning oil and gas leases in the Arctic Wildlife Refuge. Um, we just saw a policy starting to move forward that would allow oil and gas companies to inadvertently kill migratory birds, including in oil spills. You know, this is Deepwater Horizon type stuff. Um, further weakening the Endangered Species Act. And then critically, a whole host of long-term land management plans that could allow more drilling near places like Chaco Canyon and uh, Carlsbad Caverns in New Mexico and across Alaska. So this is um, really a parade of horribles that the administration is trying to crunch through in, in limited time. They're up against the clock. So the, the clock's ticking for them. They've got, got 10 weeks left. How much of this could get easily tossed out by a Biden administration? And, and how much of this could take time or be stuck on the books for the entirety of a Biden administration or beyond? Well, it, it kind of two sides of the coin. One, unfortunately, a lot of it will take time. What what this administration is trying to do uh, is make these destructive changes more permanent. And um, so that would mean the Biden administration would have to go through lengthy processes to undo it. But by that same token, uh, the administration now is having to follow laws with public comment periods, doing analysis, and and that's going to make it difficult for them to rush some of it through. And if they do, make it a little vulnerable in the courts. All right. So that's what we'll be watching until January 20th. Let's move on to the election and what we'll be watching after January 20th. We will work through some key results here state by state, but I want to start at the top, obviously, and Joe Biden's victory. Jen, I'll give you the first word on this. What does a Biden presidency mean for the outdoors? Well, what it means is uh, public lands are are the winner. Uh, public lands won in 2020. Uh, and under a Biden administration, I think we're going to see 
a lot of proactive uh, policies that focus on the protection of public lands, dealing with the climate crisis, and focusing on uh, you know a transition from oil and gas development to renewable energy. Uh, I think it's really exciting that uh, Vice President Kamala Harris, Vice President-elect Kamala Harris, comes from California. So we'll have someone you know, at the top who really understands the impacts of wildfires on uh, communities in the West and someone who will really push to, um, you know, push a, an aggressive conservation agenda. Curtis, you've worked on races across the West. Uh, what does the Biden victory, uh, you think, mean for, for the outdoors and for Western states? Yeah, and I think number one, um, uh, certainly um, beginning to address uh, the impacts of climate change, as Jen uh, mentioned. I think rolling back the the red car- carpet that the Trump administration rolled out for polluters and the extractive industries uh, is number two. Um, I, I think a restoration of science into our management and decision making, uh, which is is critical. And then um, third is an acknowledgement and probably an embracing of our public lands as um, places for people to get away and appreciate um, not just nature, um, but but, um, uh, the environment, um, particularly as we've seen uh, in in the coronavirus pandemic, uh, where people will want to get out of the cities, um, not, you know, they can't, they're, they're less inclined to get on airplanes, but uh, driving to our national parks, to other public lands nearby, uh, and really uh, reconnecting with the land. And Jesse, same question to you. What what crossed your mind when you saw that that final call from the AP come down on Saturday? You know, it, it's so exciting, right? Because uh, for our public land management and a lot of the uses on it, uh, we're stuck in a, a framework that is, uh, you know, decades, if not centuries old in terms of how we manage our public lands. And I think this is really an opportunity not just to undo a lot of the damage that's happened in the last four years, but to, to have a bold vision, right, and uh, talk about how we can conserve 30 percent of the country by 2030, how we can make sure that public lands are net zero carbon emitters. I mean, it, this isn't just a chance to, um, you know, go backwards and do small stuff, but I think we're at a critical point. And so it had me really hopeful. And we're going to get back to the big stuff and the possibilities of big, vast, uh, I don't want to say vast, the possibilities of big visionary legislation when you have a divided Congress. But before that, I just want to go through state by state and run down what happened. And we're going to go north to south, starting in Montana. I'm sure there are a lot of Democrats listening to this podcast right now who are disappointed that Democrats lost three races, the Senate, the governor, the at-large House seat. But I think it's remarkable, first of all, Jen, that public lands took center stage in all of those races, especially the Senate race. No, exactly, Aaron. And I think in Montana... We've seen in the last few election cycles that public lands have been a defining issue in Montana elections. Um, And I think earlier this year, Steve Daines saw the writing on the wall, and that's why he decided to get behind the Great American Outdoors Act that included full funding for the Land and Water Conservation Fund. And in our winning the West polling, we showed that 75% of Montana voters supported fully funding LWCF. So I think Steve Daines 
realized early on that if he didn't take a more proactive, aggressive uh, stand on conservation issues, it was going to be a challenging race. That being said, he ran against one of the you know biggest public lands champs in uh, in Montana and in Governor Steve Bullock. Um, so certainly a disappointing loss because I I truly believe that Governor Bullock uh, was you know the right candidate and the right would would be an exceptional senator from Montana. But Steve Daines is going to have. Uh, uh, he's going to have his work to do cut out for him. He can't just sit on his laurels for the next five years and expect to be reelected if he doesn't, if he doesn't continue to take public lands uh, seriously and conservation seriously. And and I'll just note real quick there that uh, we've seen Danes after the election still pushing this administration to implement the Great American Outdoors Act, which the Trump administration seems not to want to do. So I, I think the uh, direction for voters is pretty clear. And as of this taping, I, I think that that's something that we haven't seen of uh, Senator Cory Gardner, who lost his election down in, in Colorado. One thing I would add on the Montana race is I think we uh, owe um, uh, Steve Bullock a debt of gratitude because one of the things that he did during his campaign uh, was file suit against acting BLM director William Perry Penley and uh, win the court case that um, – really has provided an opportunity to overturn many of the decisions um, uh, that Perry Pendley has made uh, while, while while running the BLM without Senate confirmation. And I want to ask briefly about uh, Governor-elect Gianforte, who also ran claiming on a pro-public lands platform. There were a lot of attack ads going after him for his previous actions, trying to limit stream access, and he ran hard denying that. He's now in a position where he's going to interface with uh, a Biden-run Interior Department as they work through a number of these land use plans, Jesse, that you just mentioned that had gotten finalized. I mean, what does that look like if if Gianforte decides to cooperate, or is he going to, uh, let's say, body slam a future director of the Bureau of Land Management? Well, I think the proof will be in the pudding, right? Uh, you know, so you mentioned these land use plans that a judge threw out. Those uh, will determine how vast areas of central and western Montana are managed for the next 20 years. I mean, it's a big deal. So um, I, I think that Jim Forte probably uh, caught enough flack for blocking access to a river, um, public access near his property. And so I'm hopeful that he'll have learned that lesson and, um, you know, try to to actually be more pro-public lands and pro-public access. But, you know, we'll see. All right. Let's head to Colorado. Uh, Curtis briefly mentioned Corey Gardner. Uh, John Hickenlooper really cruised to victory. That race was, I think, even less close than a lot of observers outside of Colorado were expecting. And Joe Biden won the state by an even bigger margin. So, Jen, how do you contrast that Senate result in Montana with what happened to Cory Gardner? Well, as uh, Senator-elect Hickenlooper said in one of their debates, just because you sponsor one environmental bill, it doesn't make you an environmentalist. You know, for Cory Gardner, it was too little too late. Um, and another thing Governor or Senator-elect um, Hickenlooper pointed out that Cory Gardner is one of the first Colorado senators in decades not to introduce major wilderness legislation. Uh, Cory Gardner sat on the Senate uh, Energy and Natural Resources Committee, and he had plenty of opportunities to support uh, 
public lands and conservation in Colorado. He's blocked the the CORE Act, uh, which is legislation introduced by uh, Congressman Neguse and Senator Bennett to protect over 400,000 acres of uh, public lands in Colorado. So, you know, it's just too little too late for Cory Gardner. Curtis, do you think this has raised the bar in terms of the the barrier for entry for statewide candidates in Colorado when it comes to environmental and public lands issues? Well, it certainly shows you um, that you have to be in touch with where the electorate is. And the polling that um, uh, Center for Western Priorities and, and other organizations have done over the last decade uh, really shows that more and more uh, voters from across the political spectrum uh, in the Western United States really value uh, public lands and the environment, um, and that's critical. Uh, I, I think, you know, there's, if you look at the, uh, and, and I should throw out the caveat here, um, uh, you know, be careful in looking at early exit polls, but if you look at the early exit polling data, um, Montana and Colorado are really two different states, right? You have in Montana, 31% of the electorate uh, had a college degree, whereas in Colorado, it was uh, approaching 50%. Uh, in Colorado, 96% uh, of voters lived in um, cities over 50,000 in population or suburbs. In Montana, that was 29%. Um, you know, and then the, the the ultimate ringer in the elections, you know, Trump's favorability in Montana was 54%, and it's 42% in Colorado. And so, there there really is, a, I think, a sort of a um, a different worldview. Um, and we're not just seeing that between Colorado and Montana. There, it's really shaping up, you know, our sort of our red-blue divide is now, I think, moving into a red-blue divide between the northern Rocky states and the southern Rocky states that have larger population centers uh, and, more, and more suburban areas. And we, we saw that um, uh, with Colorado, obviously, uh, Arizona, uh, New Mexico, Nevada, uh, compare that to Wyoming, which was Trump's number one state, uh, and Montana, where, um, uh, as we talked about earlier, uh, Republicans won up and down the ticket. One other key race in Colorado that we were watching was the third district in the House, uh, where Lauren Boebert, a QAnon conspiracy buff, uh, unseated Scott Tipton in the primary and ended up winning her seat in a, a tight race against Diane Mitch Bush. Uh, Jen, what's your take on that district? Is that district shifting? Uh, what what happens there down the road? Well, I think the district will shift in 2022 because we're going to go through redistricting. Uh, Colorado is likely to get an eighth uh, congressional member of Congress. Uh, so we'll have an eighth congressional district. And uh, I think that district is likely to shift. I'm not exactly sure how they will draw the congressional district boundaries. That's obviously, uh, that'll take place over the next couple of years. But, uh, you know, I think you have the ski resort communities uh, that favored Diane Mitch Bush, but then you had large uh, uh, population centers like Grand Junction and Pueblo that, you know, are much more favorable to uh, uh, President Trump and uh, probably much more inclined to vote for uh, Lauren Boebert. Um, but I'd be interested in Curtis's take on on that one, on that question. Yeah, and I think you touched on it with Pueblo. Um, you know, um, 
Diane Mish um, barely won uh, in Pueblo. And increasingly, uh, in the last few election cycles, we've seen that go from a place where the Democratic candidate would bank votes to, to a community that really is um, a, a challenge for Democrats. And I think, um, as Jen mentioned, there's going to be redistricting. But if Pueblo remains in the third CD, um, I, I think that you know the Democrats are going to have to find a candidate um, that has broader appeal uh, in that population center uh, there. And I think one of the other challenges for Diane Mitch Bush is she was she was already a known quantity, um, and um, voters you know had, had overwhelmingly turned uh, you know uh, turned against her in two years ago, and so to to have her up again against, I think, a candidate who um, people across uh, Colorado would tell you is um, uh, hardly qualified for the job. Um, had there been a, a fresher face on the on the left, uh, might have been a slightly different outcome. But um, that, that district really does uh, tilt toward uh, Republicans, so would have would have been a challenge nonetheless. I just want to go back to, to Pueblo quickly there. It sounds like what you're saying is that the the shift in Pueblo is similar to the the shift across the country in terms of a demographic split along education being the new dividing line, at least with Trumpism being what drives the Republican Party today. Yeah, and I, I need to dive a little bit deeper into it. It's 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 education. Um, it is uh, jobs. It it's race. You know that is a town that um, uh, went for Trump in twenty. 16 over over Hillary, it came back and went slightly for Biden this year. Um, when Jared Polis was elected governor, uh, it went for him uh, by a large, uh, large margin. So it's certainly not uh, out of the realm of possibilities that, that Democrats can find a candidate um, that resonates down there. Um, but it's a place where where the Dems are going to have to continue to put uh, effort and attention um, uh moving forward if they want to win um, uh, these outstate races. Jesse, did you want to hop in there? Yeah, not to belabor this one district too much, but from a public lands uh, point of view, this is really a, a important one. You know, we're talking about some iconic landscapes in the San Juan Mountains, some of our um, uh, prettiest wilderness around, Mesa Verde National Park, Black Canyon of the Gunnison. So this has uh, got a lot of really iconic places that a lot of people around the West uh, know. And so having a member of Congress who wants to protect those places presumably would help that sort of legislation along. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, and I think people who value public lands need to pay um, very close attention uh, to Congresswoman-elect Hubert because (laughs) it it really is – there's some things she said on the campaign trail that if you um, are somebody who um, values wilderness – Uh, and access to public lands that you really need to pay attention to. I, for one, actually just set up my Google alert on Lauren Boebert this morning, so we'll be keeping an eye there. Uh, One other Colorado result to talk about. Uh, Voters in Colorado narrowly approved reintroducing wolves. That comes the week after the gray wolf was removed from the endangered species list by the Trump administration. Jesse, how, how big a deal is that? You know, this is a, a big deal in the sense that it's a, the first time voters in the state have decided to reintroduce wolves. So kind of a popular mandate. I mean, look, wolves are, are native to Colorado. They were eradicated, gosh, almost 100 years ago. Um, but 
you know, right now wolves are actually kind of starting to make their way back into the state just a little bit down from Wyoming. So I, I think it's a really interesting initiative, especially as the Trump administration has moved to strip protections under the Endangered Species Act for wolves. All right, let's head down to New Mexico now. No surprises in the presidential race there, but we do have one new senator to talk about, Ben Ray Lujan, and at least two names out of that state that I keep seeing coming up as a, a, on the list of possible cabinet secretaries, Jen. Right. Well, Congressman, now Senator-elect Ben Ray Lujan easily defeated his opponent. And as a member of Congress, you know, he's fought uh, to protect the greater Chaco cultural heritage area from oil and gas development. So I I fully expect uh, Senator-elect Lujan to, uh, you know, have a, a really aggressive uh, conservation agenda. And while he does have some big shoes to fill in uh, Tom Udall, I think I think he is he is up out, up for that challenge and uh, will will be a great uh, conservation and public lands uh, champion in the U.S. Senate. Um, I think uh, it's really exciting that uh, that we have three names coming out of New Mexico as potential interior secretaries. We've got Senator Tom Udall, who is retiring from the Senate. Uh, Senator Martin Heinrich and uh, Congresswoman Deb Holland. And what's really exciting about Congresswoman Holland, if she was selected, she would be the first Native American to serve as Interior Secretary. Something obviously long overdue, considering the um, America's history uh, of Native American genocide in in many cases. Um, Jesse or Curtis, uh, um, among those possibilities, uh, what has you excited and and why? Well, Jesse mentioned early earlier the 30 by 30 uh, initiative, and Senator Udall has been uh, a champion for that in Congress. And I think, you know, um, carrying that over to the Interior Department um, would be something that is uh, a real boon uh, to the conservation community. And so that's something that um, uh, I look at. And then from um, uh, a, you know, sort of a racial justice uh, uh, standpoint, uh, the prospect of having the, the first ever Native American cabinet secretary uh, is also one that I think people can get excited about. And I, I think for me, the exciting part is just how deep each of these um, folks' commitment to conservation is. I mean, uh, Senator Udall has a generations-long family track record and his own record um, that's pretty impressive. Um, he and Senator Heinrich fought to, to get our newest national park down in White Sands, which is pretty neat. And Congresswoman Deb Holland has fought tirelessly to protect Chaco Canyon and Bears Ears and, and a lot of places uh, around the state. So uh, all three of them have really impressive resumes and, and deep commitment. So that's exciting. And I will just note that all four of those people we just talked about, uh, Ben Ray Lujan, uh, Deb Holland, were on an episode together that we taped in Taos. Uh, we've had Senator Udall on a couple times talking about his conservation goals and 30 by 30. Um, so all of them are, are worth uh, your time going back. I'll put links to those episodes in the show notes. And then a fourth name to mention, not in terms of interior, but I have seen uh, New Mexico Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham mentioned as a possible Health and Human Services Cabinet Secretary. So uh, we could potentially see a whole lot of uh, New Mexico in the, in the Biden cabinet. Before we move on from New Mexico, I do want to 
mention a cautionary tale, perhaps. Uh, one of the higher profile Democrats who was a freshman lost her reelection race this year was Sochi Torres Small uh, out of New Mexico's second district. Uh, do we have a sense yet of what happened there? Well, it's, you know, that was a district that um, uh, was a flip in the 2018 midterms. And I think one of the things that we're, we're seeing in, in these districts that Democrats failed to hold here in 2020 is a lot of them became nationalized, right? And, the, and it became less about the candidates work for the district and uh, more about the Republicans ability to demonize um, um, or, or frame um, the election as a choice between um, you know, congressional Democrats, um, particularly you, you, you see that with Chuck Schumer uh, and Nancy Pelosi and then um, uh, AOC and the squad. And so that's one, um, um, certainly. And it's a, it's a district that is, um, uh, you know, oil and gas is a, is a big deal down there. And so when you can demonize the candidate uh, as supporting the Green New Deal, even though she didn't, um, it, it makes a, up for a real steep climb. I will note that she, that Sochi, her first time around, ran on a very strong defend your public lands platform. And from what I could tell, that messaging fell off this time around. Certainly didn't see quite as much. I mean, she's been a, a strong defender of a great national monument down there, Oregon Mountains, Desert Peaks. Um, and that means a lot to the, the local community there. So, and I, again, to Curtis's point, I think we have a lot of uh, learning to do and, and going through uh, the results, but uh, certainly an interesting result. All right, let's head over to Arizona, uh, which is suddenly looking a whole lot more like New Mexico and Colorado politically than it was even four years ago. Uh, Mark Kelly made a big deal during his campaign about protecting the Grand Canyon from uranium mining. He campaigned hard on the need to address climate change. That obviously was a big contrast from Martha McSally, who uh, now has the honor of uh, being a senator to have lost twice, uh, all while she keep getting kept getting appointed to this position. Uh, Jen, what, what's the, the lesson out of Arizona right now? And do you think this is a permanent political shift in the, in the state? Well, Aaron, it certainly seems like it. And I, I, I'm just stunned that Martha McSally uh, blew this opportunity. I mean, here two years ago, she was appointed to fill the seat of, of legendary Senator John McCain. And I think she really blew an opportunity um, to be a champion for public lands, to, to really focus on the fact that voters in Arizona don't want uranium mining around the Grand Canyon. They want to protect the Grand Canyon from uranium mining. Uh, and, uh, you know, she really missed the mark when it came to uh, tapping into the where voters are on public lands, on conservation and on climate change. It certainly seems to me that this could be a shift in Arizona. I think we've talked about the, you know, uh, you know, population senator senators like Phoenix and Maricopa County, um, you know, turning bluer. And then, um, you know, you had a large, uh, you know, vote out of the Native American population in Arizona. 
and that vote, from what we can tell, was exceptionally lopsided. I'm I'm looking around for comparisons, haven't found any to previous elections, but there's a piece in High Country News this week noting that there were some some Navajo precincts went 90-10 for Biden, some Tohono O'odham precincts uh, near the border that went 98% Biden. Uh, Jesse, it seems like this is a, a pretty strong repudiation of the Trump administration's approach to Indian country. It, I mean, it certainly is. And, and you're right, the turnout was exceptional. Another uh, really uh, interesting article to read is in the Washington Post about uh, horseback rides to the polls on the Navajo Nation. So just exceptional effort to, to get out. Um, you know, this administration has had a, a pretty egregious track record, rolling back Bears Ears National Monument, a pretty awful response to the coronavirus when it comes to tribes. Um, and obviously, when it comes to the Tohono O'odham Nation, I mean, blasting through their um, uh, sacred homelands for a, a border wall. So, uh, yeah, yeah, it's a clear, stark result. All right. So how does all of this play out next January? Uh, what I want to ask each of you, what do you hope President-elect Biden takes on first in the West with the knowledge that obviously his plate is full and the COVID epidemic is only going to get worse over the next 10 weeks. I'll let Jen go first there. I think certainly uh, symbolically, and this is beyond symbolic, but uh, you know, I would really like to see uh, the Biden-Harris administration restore the boundaries of Bears Ears and Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument and lay the groundwork uh, for his plan to protect 30% of lands and waters by 2030. Curtis? Um, I I think um, really undoing uh, all of the executive orders uh, that the Trump administration has done uh, in its uh, assault uh, on our public lands uh, and waters. Jesse? Well, I'll kind of cheat here and give you two things. One, uh, I am really excited about the opportunity to uh, make our public lands part of the climate solution instead of part of the climate problem. You know, right now, about a quarter of our greenhouse gas emissions come from fossil fuels taken from public lands. And so as a part of that, I think uh, a really interesting um, path forward would be to reform the Bureau of Land Management. I mean, this is an agency that manages a tenth of the country um, and historically has been, you know, the Bureau of Livestock and Mining. And I think we have a chance, the administration has a chance to um, have a forward thinking view of how, how should we manage these vast stretches of public lands for all Americans and for our future. I'm going to put you on the spot for some more specifics there. What does a shift in priorities at BLM look like? And can that be done at the agency level or does Congress have to step in? Sure. So right now, the the assumption is uh, from these uh, top political appointees and the land managers that um, if you've got public land out there, it's available for drilling and mining. And that's uh, easy. And I, I think we need to put more, more priority on conservation and really uh, talk to folks in local communities about what they want to see for the um, coming generations and not necessarily have a default position that our public lands are for drilling and mining. We're not going to know the final balance of power in the Senate until January, thanks to those two runoffs in Georgia. Regardless of what happens there, it's going to be closely divided. Jen, do you think Congress can get anything done on public lands, or will the next two years now be all about rulemakings and executive orders and secretarial orders? 
Well, I think, you know, if we look at the last couple of years, uh, public lands legislation has actually been the legislation, except for COVID-related uh, legislation, that is passed by large majorities uh, in both the House and the Senate and have been signed by, uh, by President Trump. So I think legislatively, uh, there's a huge opportunity to uh, get stuff done on protecting public lands and wilderness. Uh, that being said, uh, I don't underestimate uh, Mitch McConnell and his uh, ability to uh, block legislation that will be important to this administration. So I think, you know, it's going to be a combination. Rulemakings and executive orders are are going to be very important. Yeah, the stakes in Georgia are really high. Um, the the difference between a, a Democratic-controlled Senate with Vice President-elect uh, Kamala Harris breaking ties uh, and one in which, um, you know, um, Mitch McConnell is still the majority leader is, is, is stark. Um, there was an article, uh, I think, in the Washington Post earlier this week that noted that, you know, if, if Republicans uh, control the Senate, then two senators from coal states, that's John Barrasso from Wyoming and Shelley Moore Capito from West Virginia, will be at the helm of energy and natural resources and environment and public works. And that is going to be a huge uh, hurdle, uh, if not roadblock, uh, to addressing climate uh, and uh, in, in, in enacting the 30 by 30 uh, initiatives um, uh, that we need to do uh, sooner rather than later. So on the flip side there, or maybe this is just me being an optimist, uh, it sounds like the key then, if it is a Republican-controlled Senate, is figuring out which Republican senators have the ear of Mitch McConnell to get him out of his normal state of just blocking everything uh any uh, any of you who will you be looking for who you think might get mitch mcconnell to the table and get some of these public lands bills passed i think steve daines has taken that role on right i mean he, he was re-elected on a public lands agenda so my hope is that steve daines would uh would would be part of uh, a solution and not part of the problem and you know one one other thing we're, we're a Western podcast, but I, I would also just say that um, uh, outdoor recreation and, and conservation are, are also increasingly popular issues on the East Coast. I mean, you've seen a lot of um, organizing in places like North Carolina and Tennessee and Maine. Um, so I, I think it's it's a broader landscape than just the West when it comes to conservation. So I, I, some of those senators are in play as well. Richard Burr was always one of the LWCF champs in the Senate. Yep, and Lamar Alexander in Tennessee for national parks um, maintenance. Uh, the list is is getting pretty long these days. Curtis, and that's going to be important, um, Jesse, because as we look at the 2022 uh, political landscape, there really aren't vulnerable Republicans in the Western United States. So whereas um, you know this this cycle, uh, McConnell, um, you, you know, enacted. Uh, um, the Great American Outdoors Act uh, to throw a life raft to uh, Senators Danes and Gardner. Um, the, from a Western state's perspective, um, that's not going to be as uh, as big an issue uh, two years down the road. Any other interesting races, or you think the big picture for 2022 that's uh, that's already starting to take shape? I can't believe I'm asking that question when we're not even in 2021 <laughs> yet. But sure, let, let let's go there. 
Well, um, uh, Mark Kelly uh, will have to defend his seat in Arizona. So obviously that's one to pay close attention to. Um, uh, Catherine Cortez Mastin in Nevada, uh, that's going to be another um, hotly contested race. And then probably down the scale a little little bit, uh, Senator Michael Bennett here in Colorado um, will will be up for re-election. And then Mike Lee um, and Mike Crapo uh, in Utah and Idaho, uh, respectively. Um, But I think those last three are all um, pretty firmly entrenched um, uh, with with the party that holds them based on what we know today. All right. I want to wrap up by asking each of you to give one piece of advice to the incoming administration. Uh, If you got five minutes to sit down with the next interior secretary, whomever he or she might be, what do you say to them? And I'll let Jesse go first here. Boy, put me on the spot. Well, I'd I'd say um, just make it uh, an incredible priority to listen to the science, listen to local communities, make sure to get out around the West and hear what people want in terms of their uh, public lands. I mean, that's what we've seen in our, our polling and in conversations with folks is that this is such a, a bipartisan issue and there's a growing consensus around it. And so uh, trust your folks and, and move forward with speed. Curtis? In addressing the um, very real and very uh, impactful um, threat that is the coronavirus uh, pandemic, don't forget or lose sight of the threat that is climate change. Um, I think, you know, given uh, the economic impacts, the public health impacts uh, of coronavirus, it's sort of front and center. Um, but we we have to begin uh, taking steps uh, to address climate change where it's, it's past time. And I think voters sent that message in 2018 and it's still top of mind. Uh, and it really has to be uh, part of um, the agenda and the bold vision for the Biden administration moving forward. Jen, you get the last word. You know, I, I'd echo what both uh, Jesse and Curtis said. I'd say be bold and listen to the public. I think Western voters in particular are hungry for uh, an agenda that protects public lands and sees the value in, uh, you know, outdoor recreation to communities in the West. And, you know, let's transition to uh, a clean energy economy. So be bold and be aggressive. All right. Jennifer Rokola, Curtis Hubbard, Jesse Prentice Dunn. Thanks so much to all three of you for joining us. I'm sure we will be checking back in early in the administration to see how things are going. Thanks so much for taking the time today. Thank you. Thanks, Aaron. Bye-bye. That'll do it for this episode of The Landscape. I'll just close by sharing my advice for the incoming administration. Don't wait. Doing this stuff right takes time. So much of the Trump administration's agenda will get undone because they either rushed and didn't follow the rules or waited until the last minute. So Team Biden, get going right now on the big stuff. Don't let up until it's over the finish line and you can defend it in court. I think you could hear it from Jen, Jesse, and Curtis there. We're excited about what comes next. I'm excited to watch it happen. I'm excited for what it means for the lands I love in the West. We will, of course, keep advocating for our public lands and the people who live here. And it is going to take all of you to make it happen. Everyone who stood up to tell the Trump administration when they were wrong, 
you're still going to have to stand up and tell a Biden administration when they're right. Public opinion matters. The squeaky wheel still gets the press coverage. So the fight isn't over. It's just beginning. On behalf of Jen, Jesse, and the whole Western Priorities team, I'm Aaron Weiss. Thank you so much for listening. Let's do this.